As we gather for worship this morning, I invite you to hear these words from Psalm 36. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord, how precious is your unfailing love. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You feed them from the abundance of your house, letting them drink from your rivers of delight. For you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see. Pour out your unfailing love on those who love you and give justice to those with honest hearts. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. God of abundant and steadfast love, We gather to worship and to praise you this day. There is no way we as humans can measure the immensity of your love for us because it's as vast as the heavens itself. Your love is deeper than the deepest sea and all creation cannot contain the love that flows so faithfully and generously from your heart of grace. So God, sometimes we have doubts about how lovable we are. So help us today to accept the searching light of your love into our lives so that with honest hearts we may experience your peace surrounding and upholding us in our daily struggles. God, help us to always rely on your eternal promises so that claiming those promises as our very own, we may daily grow in love and in our commitment to your holy and righteous way. We seek to serve you all of our days. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, this is a letter from Jeremiah to the exiles, uh, Jewish exiles who are in Babylon, and it's a powerful message. It's a word of encouragement to God's people and to us. We don't always like the circumstances of our life. We can't always see a hopeful way forward. And so today we're going to focus on God's greater purpose. We've heard it said that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. That's easy to agree with when when we like the plan. But what do we do when the plan isn't what we expected? The doctor calls with bad news. I'm sorry, but it's cancer. The spouse tells you he wants a divorce after 26 years of marriage. Your boss calls you in and says, we've decided to let you go. Your oldest daughter moves out after a disagreement and now she's living with her boyfriend. After wrecking your car, you discover that your insurance won't cover all the expenses. Your best friend decides she doesn't need you in her life anymore, and suddenly she won't return your phone calls or your emails. Your job search has led to a dead end, and now you're out of money, and you're out of leads. You forgot to make your quarterly payment for your income tax, and now you owe the IRS $15,000. You prayed for your oldest son to come back to the Lord, but instead he seems to have hardened his heart even more. Your husband has just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Your supervisor calls you and says, we've been getting lots of complaints about your performance. If it doesn't improve, you'll be gone by the end of the month. The grad school of your dreams just turn you down. 
See, when the plan isn't what we expected, we often cry out, Lord, what's happening? Most of us are familiar, I think, with the notion that God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we think he should or the way we would like, pray for any length of time, and sooner or later, probably sooner, we will come up against the hard reality that sometimes a sincere prayer just doesn't seem to be answered at all. You know, I've often thought about the unspoken requests that people mention when the time comes to gather and pray together. After all the usual requests are spoken, someone tentatively raises their hand to say, I have an unspoken request. So what exactly falls into that category? An unspoken request is something that we don't, can't or don't want to share publicly, but it also may be something so close to the heart that we can't mention it without tears. It's a request that arises at the painful intersection of biblical faith and the reality that we live in a fallen world. So we come back to the question, what do we do when God doesn't come through for us? How do we keep hope alive when life itself seems to take a wrong turn down a dead-end street? What if all that we hold dear is suddenly snatched away? If all the familiar landmarks are removed, if our friends desert us, if our job is gone, if our health disappears, if death comes unwanted at our door? These things do happen to people like us. What then? It's then that we have to face a difficult but undeniable reality. Sometimes God's plan is different than our plan. It's different than what we expect. You know, the Jews had a long history of seeing God intervene for them. It happened when Moses led them out of Egypt. It happened when God sustained them during 40 years of wandering in the wilderness it happened when they crossed the Jordan River. It happened when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. It happened when they conquered the promised land. It happened when Gideon defeated the Midianites. It happened when Samson defeated the Philistines. It happened when Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. It happened when David defeated Goliath. It happened when Jehoshaphat defeated the Ammonites. Over and over again, the children of Israel found themselves in a terrible spot. And when they were outnumbered and when they were overwhelmed, when they had no hope, God intervened. He came through for them time and time again. It happened so often that the people came to believe that God would always be there for them, no matter what. After all, they were God's chosen people he had not the Almighty promised to deliver them? Did they not have the temple in Jerusalem where God himself lived? What other people were so highly blessed? Other nations had their tribal deities, but only Israel had the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We are so blessed, the people would say, and so they were, and so they taught their children and their grandchildren. But any blessing long neglected will eventually be lost. And that part of the story somehow never took root in the hearts of God's people. The privileges, yes, 
They enjoyed those, but the responsibilities and the warnings, those never seemed to take hold with God's people. Fast forward to 605 B.C. The Babylonian army led by Nebuchadnezzar has come to the gates of the city. It was a dark and dismal moment in Israel's history, but the people said, God won't let the Babylonians conquer us. They were wrong about that. Fast forward again to 597 B.C. The Babylonians once again threatened Jerusalem and the people said, God won't let it happen again. They were wrong again. Fast forward to 586 B.C. The Babylonians have come back again. This time they set a siege around the city intending to starve the people into submission. And inside there was fear and there was dismay and the people said to themselves, God surely won't let him this happened a third time, and they were wrong again. Now we run the clock backwards a few years, back to 594 BC. Now we are in Babylon, and the exiles have heard uh, about a man named Hananiah. You can read about him in Jeremiah chapter 28, who predicts that within two years, they would come back home. God will not leave you in Babylon for a long time. He'll be, you'll be home back in your own homes in two years. That was good news to the Jews who hated Babylon. God won't make us stay here. Wrong again. It was the familiar problem of false expectations. And that brings us to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, which contains a very specific promise from God to the exiles in faraway Babylon. Look at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. There are two ways to read this verse, and both of them are legitimate, and how you read it probably depends on where you are in life. If you're anywhere but Babylon, you read this verse, and you think God promises to bring his people back home to their homeland. But if you're in exile living in Babylon, your focus will necessarily be somewhere else. Seventy years. you got to be kidding, God. You see, it seemed like a terrible mistake, a cruel cosmic joke. Surely the Lord didn't literally mean 70 years. That would mean an entire generation would live and die in Babylon, and children born at the beginning might not even live long enough to see the end. Surely God wouldn't do something like that, would he? And the answer is, he would, and he did. And he did it without explaining things completely to his people, and they never, ever saw the big picture that God had in mind. But looking back after the passing of 25 centuries, we can see clearly that God had many things in mind by sending his people into exile. So let me suggest to you this morning seven things that God accomplished through the 70 years his people spent in captivity. First of all, the grip of idolatry was finally broken. It was for this sin more than any other that Israel had been judged. And because the people had repeatedly broken the first and second commandments, God had raised up pagans to judge them severely. 
Jeremiah 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 says, Your own actions have brought this upon you. This punishment is bitter. It is piercing you to the heart. So malicious was the virus of idolatry that only a severe quarantine would remove it from among God's people. And so because they love their idols, God put them among a people whose whole system was based on idolatry, as if by exposing them to Babylonian worship, they would be inoculated against it. And so it happened. And though the temptation always remained, the people as a whole never again embraced idol worship. Though idolatry as a matter of the heart would always plague the Jewish people, and uh, the pestilence of Baal worship was eradicated during that 70 years. The second accomplishment, God established a presence among the Babylonians. Let's back up uh, a few moments and look at an earlier story that involves God's people, specifically about a man named Daniel and some of his friends and the Babylonians. And this story is found in the Old Testament book of Daniel chapters 1 through 6. And here in this story, we learn that that the godly have a powerful influence in this world for good. Godly people can make an impact in the middle of an overwhelmingly even pagan environment. The young Hebrews who remained true to God not only were noticed by the Babylonians, but they were promoted to positions of high authority. In this way, God established for himself a witness here in the Babylonian culture. Today we might call it a kind of pre-evangelism in which Daniel and his friends gained for themselves the respect of those around them because they would not compromise their convictions. And as a result of their courage, Nebuchadnezzar himself noticed them and rewarded them, which leads to the third accomplishment, God raised up Daniel to a position of great influence. Daniel and his three friends were taken to Babylon in the first deportation, 605 BC. Immediately, he and his friends drew the attention of their captors because of their religious convictions. And soon Daniel would interpret Nebuchadnezzar's strange dream, and later he became a court advisor to a succession of rulers all the way to Belshazzar, the final ruler of Babylon, and Darius, who was the ruler of the Medes. And Daniel came to Babylon as a teenager and was still there when the first Jews returned home after the 70 years. Evidently, he himself remained behind in Babylon. Perhaps he was too old to make the long journey home. But during all of those years, God used him as a witness to the truth at the heart of a pagan power. Now, fourth, Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in God. Daniel chapter 4 tells us the amazing story about Nebuchadnezzar and having been so puffed up with pride that he kind of lost his mind. And it says he ate grass with the cattle for seven years. And when he finally came to his senses, he cried out to the Lord of heaven in true repentance, and this would not have happened without the influence of Daniel and his friends. Then fifth, the Jews lived in peace in Babylon. In a matter of, uh, it's a matter of historical record that once the Jews were in Babylon, they were reasonably treated well. Instead of persecute, being persecuted endlessly, their captors gave them freedom to develop their own community. 
And if you consider both the Jews in Babylon and those left behind in Jerusalem, we can see that they made some significant spiritual gains during this exile period. For instance, it was during the 70-year period that important parts of the Old Testament were written, including the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and parts of the Psalms. It is also the first time that the Jews began to put together the canon of Scripture. Um, before the exile, there was no formal uh, collection of books that we today call the Old Testament. The beginnings of that collection trace back to the Babylonian exile. Sixth, Judaism becomes a worldwide religion. This period also marks the true beginning of the Jewish dispersion. Even though the northern tribes of Israel had been carried away by the Assyrians in 722 BC, it was the destruction of the temple 586 BC in Jerusalem that ultimately changed the character of the Hebrew faith. Before then, it had been centered exclusively in Jerusalem, and after this time, the Jews are scattered among the nations. The synagogue was born during the exile period. The yeshivas, uh, Jewish schools for the study of the Torah, trace back to this period. The Babylonian Talmud comes from the exile period. Over time, the Jews spread to every part of what would become the Roman Empire. And 600 years later, as the early Christians began to fan out from Jerusalem with the gospel, where did they go first? They always started in the synagogue because that was the obvious starting point to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Now check the record of Paul's journeys in the book of Acts. In every city where the apostle Paul started, he started by going to the synagogue first. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile was his motto. The exile scattered the Jews who became part of God's plan for spreading the gospel six centuries later. And then the seventh accomplishment, Daniel and his contemporaries introduced Bible prophecy to the educated classes. Now we know that something like this must have happened because 550 years later, when the Magi, remember the Magi in the New Testament story of the birth of Jesus, when the Magi show up in Jerusalem, they say, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east as it rose, and we have come to worship him. How did they know about the king of the Jews? Someone had to tell them. How did they know to look to the stars? Evidently, they were used to searching the skies for signs that would predict the future. The book of Daniel frequently mentions magi in the court of Babylon. And if you check out Daniel chapter 5, verse 11, you discover that Daniel was actually named chief of the Magi and head over all the priests and all the spiritual leaders in this pagan culture. Now think about that. A loyal, observant Jew was promoted to chief over the spiritual leaders in the capital of a foreign empire. Only God could orchestrate something like that. This does not mean that all the Magi became believers, but it does clearly imply that Daniel had a huge influence on them. 
Author and pastor John MacArthur explains the connection this way. He says, Daniel was chosen to become chief of the Magi when he demonstrated his superior ability in interpreting dreams. And by the divine coincidence of having a great Hebrew prophet to rule the Magi, 600 years before Jesus was born, God was, in effect, setting up the situation so that one day when a baby was born in Bethlehem, some of those Magi would find their way to the house where the baby was, and they would acknowledge him as the king. Now, as we stand back and evaluate all of this, we should be asking ourselves, how much did the Jews understand any of this at the time? And I think the answer would be that they clearly understood the first part, that God was punishing them for their sin. And I'm pretty sure the rest was hidden from their view. But over time, they would begin to understand that God had chosen to bless them, even in the exile. But the longer-range purposes of God would not have been visible to them at all. And so it is for us. We serve a transgenerational God whose purposes span the centuries. He does not confine himself to our timetable. He doesn't limit himself to our puny understanding of what he intends to do. He can, we can only see these things, these divine purposes, because we have uh, the benefit of 2,500 years of perspective. So this leads to a practical observation for all those of us who may feel like we're in our own Babylon today. And I would encourage you not to judge the end by the beginning. We can't tell now how all of this will result uh, from what will result from our current troubles or issues or circumstances. And it's unlikely that we may ever fully understand, even five or 10 or 20 years from now, because God is God. He doesn't work on our timetable, and he doesn't obligate himself to explain the bigger picture to us. Someone once made the analogy that we are like ants crawling across a painting by Rembrandt. We crawl across the dark brown, and we think all of life is dark brown. And then we hit green, and we think, oh, this is better. Now all of it's green. But soon comes the dark blue, and then a splash of yellow, and a streak of red, and another patch of brown. And on this journey from one color to another, we never realize that God is actually painting a masterpiece in our lives using all the colors of the palette. And one day we will learn that every color had its place, every color had its reason, Nothing was wasted, nothing was out of place, and just as there is a time and a season for everything, the scripture says, there is also a color for every stage of life's journey, and when the painting is finished, we will discover that we were part of a great masterpiece from the very beginning. Time is the canvas on which God does his painting, and eternity is the perspective from which we will see the beauty of his handiwork. You know, history is God's story. It is the slow outworking of God's plan across the years and the generations and the centuries. It is so much bigger than you and me that it can't, we can't begin to comprehend all that God's plan contains. If we focus on our current state of being, our current troubles, we are likely to just get discouraged and disheartened and confused and angry and frustrated and depressed. 
and we will doubt that the Lord, we will doubt the Lord and will be tempted to turn away from him. And many, many people have done exactly that. They have thought about their own suffering and their own pain in the world around them, and they have given up on their faith. But it all goes back to whether or not we're willing to believe what God says in Jeremiah 29.10. If you're a Jew in exile, it's not easy to hear that you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Because that means you're probably going to die there. On the other hand, God is promising to bring his children home at last. And he promises that for all of us. There is no escape from the suffering and the pain of this world. Think about it this way. If you were a Jew in exile, in one sense, it didn't matter whether you believed in God or not. You're still in Babylon either way. But on a daily basis, either we live with hope or we don't. And if we live with hope, we can pass that hope along to our children and our grandchildren. And that matters. So where does all this leave us? Well, the answer is we're all hurting people in one way or another, and we live in this sin-cursed world. None of us are immune from the sufferings of humanity. All the sons and daughters of Adam live in this wreckage of the bus that Adam and Eve drove off the cliff. We live with pain and suffering every day. There is no escape from that reality. But when we hurt, we have two choices. We can either hurt with God or without God. And if you're here today and you're hurting, as you hear this message, you may feel as if you've come to the end of your endurance. But I pray that you will hang on to the Lord because if you turn away from him, things are only gonna get worse. It's a great story about the pioneer missionary, J. Hudson Taylor. He founded the China Indian, uh, Inland Mission to reach the multitudes of Chinese people who had never heard the gospel. And during the days, the terrible days of the Boxer Rebellion in the early 1900s, when missionaries were being captured and killed, he went through such uh, an agony of soul that he could not pray. And he wrote in his journal, he summarized his spiritual condition this way. He said, I can't read, I can't think, I can't even pray but I can trust. You see, there will be times when we might not even be able to pick up the Bible and read it. Sometimes we won't be able to focus our thoughts on God. Sometimes we may not even be able to pray, but in those moments when we can't do anything else, we can still trust in the loving purposes of our Heavenly Father. And for those who don't think it's worth to keep believing, I don't have the power today to convince you otherwise. But if you have eyes to see beyond your own problems, look up and you will see the hand of God at work. And remember this, God always has a bigger plan. Let's pray. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know our fears, our desires. You know the plans we have for our own lives and that sometimes we don't even stop to seek your plan and purpose for our life. Don't let us, don't let our desires blind us to your will. Keep us on your path. And when we stray, throw up an obstacle that we just can't get past. Help us to follow you. Give us peace about whatever comes. Guide us and direct us as we seek to follow you. Thank you for loving us. 
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.